0: We pray that further into our lives, that we would realize and recognize that you are a God that wants, desires to lead us to green pastures. You're not nefarious, you're not trying to make our lives miserable. You want to lead us. We're stubborn sheep. We don't want to follow. We want to go our own way. We think we know what's best. But God, you're a good and faithful God. You comfort us. You correct us with your rod and with your staff. And I pray when we feel that correction uh, from the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we would run to you. And that we would remember that your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your mercy, your grace to us will never run out. There are storehouses of it, one by Christ our Savior. And your Son and our King. I pray on this morning with the craziness of our lives as we think back through this past week what some of us have experienced and been through. And as we think about what's ahead this next week, what fears and anxieties, what stresses that we have that we're about to walk into this next week, that we would recognize the last part of Psalm 23, that we're made for the purpose of dwelling in your house forever. So give us, I pray, as a church, as individuals, that eternal perspective of who we're made for, of why we're made, and then may we sort all of our decisions, our actions, our emotions, our plans through that grid and through that framework so that we might glorify you and enjoy you forever. So I do pray for joy. Even if we have difficult weeks ahead or if we've had a difficult week behind, even if our soul, as we'll find in this psalm, is downcast, may we, may we put our hope in you, and may you become our joy, and may you become our refuge. And Jesus, help us to be a community, reflects that. In our Sunday schools, our journey groups, community groups, uh, as we kind of interact with each other, may we be great initiators of your gifts to each other. May we be uh, distribution agents spreading your gentleness and your kindness and your humility uh, across this culture in our community, in our church, and even in our homes. We commit the rest of this time uh, to you, and we pray, Holy Spirit, you would help us, the one who preaches and those who listen. Uh, May we fix our eyes now on Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. There are uh, two schools of Greek thought and philosophy that have formed how we as Westerners deal with emotion. I don't know if you know that or not, but sometimes we're so far down the stream of prior thought that we kind of lose where we are. The first one is called Epicureanism. Uh, about 100 years before Christ, Epictetus was the guy who, one of the main founders of it. And Epicureanism says, look, when you have emotion or when you have feeling that's not good or which is hard or which is sad, the way you deal with that is to seek pleasure. Just somehow get your way, get, get out of those awful feelings by finding pleasure, finding joy in something. Get over it and use pleasure as a means to deal with your emotion epictetus and the followers of epicureanism would say look wear wear emotion on your sleeve it's okay you can be a complete mess but be very emotional and seek pleasure matter of fact they had a garden on one of the main thoroughfares that people would walk through uh, in rome and in that garden there was a gate and the gate had a saying over it that said this stranger you would do good to stay here for a while For the highest good is pleasure. In other words, Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. Everything's going to be all right, you know? No matter what you're feeling, just just get happy somehow. In almost every major city, and I think I didn't do a study on this, uh, but somebody should. In almost every major city, I would almost guarantee you there's a Greek restaurant called the Epicurean. You might have had an awful week. Just come eat this gyro, you know, just get over, just seek pleasure. Why did they call it Epicurean? Because you just seek pleasure, you know, just drown your sorrows in this gyro and extra fries. That's what you do. In no major city, no major city, and I haven't done a study on this, but I'm pretty sure this is true. No major city will you ever find a restaurant called Stoicism. You'll never find that. Because Stoics is the other Greek philosophy. About 100 years after Christ, uh, Seneca, uh, the the last great Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, uh, his meditations, Stoics. Stoics say, and Marcus Aurelius said, choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. Don't feel harmed and you haven't been. He wouldn't do well with the snowflake culture that we live in. Today, Stoicism says, look, just accept the reality of life. Quit your crying. Get over it. Tamp down your emotions. Deal with this life through courage, through temperance. Those were their first two core values. And so if you feel anything, you know, kind of buck it up. Now here's the question. What kind of home did you grow up in? What kind of culture did you grow up in? And for parents... What kind of home are you creating? Are you creating a home where people have to be happy all the time and nobody can have emotions and you don't like the mood swings that come with, you know, teenagers and everybody? Or uh, did you grow up in a home where your parents would say to you, quit your crying? Or or did you grow up in a home where your mom or your dad were so emotional and and every day you just didn't know what you were going to get and people were all, you know, everything was always happening and everybody wore their emotions on their sleeves? What kind of home did you grow up in? A home where everybody was melting down all the time or a home where your dad would say, I don't care how you feel? (laughs) Now, let me ask you this. What's your role of emotions in your life? Do you look down on people that wear their emotions on their sleeves? For example, let's just bring it home for a second, can we? When I tear up in the service, do you roll your eyes? Do you say, oh, here he goes again. (laughs) Another weeping pastor. Uh, Do you look down on people that are too emotional or overly emotional? Do you roll your eyes at them? Or on the other side, are you intensely suspicious of people who can watch a YouTube video of a dad coming home from the military and hugging his daughter at a basketball game, and they don't cry? Like, does that make you suspicious of those people? Like, are you like, do you not have a pulse? Like, so what's your view? You have to think through this, because God wants to redeem all things, And part of this is our emotions, and every human emotion, we'll find, is in the Psalms. And we're going to talk about Psalm 42 here in a second. But first, you have to do the analysis of how you actually view emotions. What's actually your relationship with feelings? What's your relationship with emotions? Now, quickly, four points. Number one, emotions often reflect desires. Look at verse 1 and look at verse 2. Of uh, Psalm forty two. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul, so, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when I shall come and appear before God. Emotions often reflect desires. Here the Psalmist is he has this emotion of longing, of being tired, of being worn out, of being parched being dehydrated. And he uses this metaphor, as the Psalms usually do, uh, with this deer, as a deer is longing for the water. So that's the emotion. I have this desire, but this emotion is actually leading me to you. I actually miss a relationship with you. I actually don't have one. I can't sense you. I can't feel you right now, now God. And as my Soul is longing for you. It's showing the deeper desire. Matter of fact, that old Augustine quote: "Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Thee." If if we could take the time and we could right now say, "What are you feeling? What's your emotion right now?" I would I would put before us that every emotion that you have is actually showing you a deeper desire of something that God wants to fulfill. You're lonely? Maybe and I've told you sometimes I have crippling loneliness. You're lonely? It's a deep desire to invitation for intimacy with Christ. You're fearful? You actually want the security of God's sovereignty. You're anxious? You're actually longing for a deeper contentment that it's going to be okay. That, As we'll sing at the end, it is well with my soul. Our emotions often reflect the desires that we're thirsting for. And let me just pause. Again, I'm going to pause several times to try to give you a chance to take this a little bit further down to your heart. What are you thirsting for? In your life, what are you actually longing for right now? What are your desires and are your emotions, could your emotions lead you to what God actually wants to fulfill in your life? J.I. Packer, I had uh, spent a weekend with J.I. Packer, which is my only claim to fame. And the, one of the best scholars in the history of the world, in my opinion. Very, very intellectual. J.I. Packer said... But for all this, we must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship. I think it's on the screen or will be. As well as an intellectual and volitional one. And could not indeed be a deep relation between persons were it not so. The believer is and must be emotionally involved in the victories and the vicissitudes of God's cause in the world, just as Sir Winston's Winston Churchill, prime minister of Britain during the uh, Second Great War. Sir Witten's personal staff were emotionally involved in the ups and downs of the war. Believers rejoice when their God is honored and vindicated and feel the acutest distress when they see God flouted. See, one of the, rela- one of the reasons why your Christianity might feel so dry to you right now is because you're actually not emotionally involved with the kingdom of Christ. Look at what he says. Believers rejoice when their God is honored and vindicated and feel the acutest desires when they see God flouted. In other words, we should be in the game emotionally with the kingdom of God. We should weep over abortion and injustice and racism and sin and oppression At every funeral I do, I I usually tell the family, although they might have had a great long life and they're now with the Lord, there's still a moment of rage. This is not the way this should be. We shouldn't have to bury our parents. We shouldn't have to bury our kids. We should be involved deeply with that. And at the same time, We should also be rejoicing over any victory that comes our way. A small confession of sin, somebody repenting, somebody saying, I'm sorry, somebody showing gentleness or kindness. At those moments, we should stand up and clap, but we have to be in the game. Look, you could take anybody uh, to a Clemson football game, and let's say it's the last 30 seconds and uh, you're all there, there, field goal to win, down by two points, field goal to win, 45-yarder, and uh, kick goes up and it hits off the goalpost. Everybody in the stadium who's rooting for Clemson is gonna go, oh, everybody's gonna moan, right? Or let's say it goes in, everybody's gonna cheer. You're gonna throw your beer on somebody. You're gonna clap people. You're gonna hug people you didn't know two seconds ago. You know what? Never happens right before the field goal goes up. Nobody in that stadium says, I think I'll go get a Coke. You would say, No, what? you're not even in the game. Like, it actually doesn't matter the, the victory or the defeat. You have to be here emotionally. We brought you here so you can enjoy this very moment. And as Packer said, believers rejoice when their God is honored, they feel vindicated. They feel the acutest distress when they see their father flouted. In Christianity, there is a space to grieve, but there's also room for joy. On uh, Mother's Day, our Mother's Day tradition is I make a meal for uh, Elizabeth, which I still don't know why. I'm still trying to get my kids to understand. She's your mother, not my mother. <laughs> and they still have not gotten that. It makes me so mad. But they're not in this service, so I'll probably cut that from the next one. And then we watch, after that, we watch home videos. That's our Mother's Day tradition, to watch home videos. That's not what we do on Father's Day. On Father's Day, we go to five guys and watch golf. But on Mother's Day, this is what we do. And uh, we we watched his own video. Daniel was three, I think, two or three, and one of his birthdays, and he was crying. I mean, just bawling. You know, those two- or three-year-old toddler kind of cries, just bawling, bawling, bawling while we were trying to force-feed him cake. And, you know, he'd get a little taste, and, you know, he'd start to perk up, and then he'd start crying again. And uh, we were all laughing because during that time, he was was crying. The girls were just sitting there eating, pretending like nothing was happening. (laughs) And Elizabeth was crying, Uh, but not, uh, not sad. She was crying from laughter at how ridiculous Daniel was being. And so at the same moment, you have this incredible joy, like it's going to be okay, kid. We're trying to force feed you cake. And then the other kid, you know, Daniel just have breaking apart. Both of those things are happening at the same time. And I thought that's a, that's a lesson of Christianity, all the good things God is trying to give us, he does with this smile and we reject it and we're crying about it. And he's like, I'm trying to lead you to green pastures. I'm trying to give you the things that you actually desire in your life. Now, number two, emotions need to be recognized. Look at verses three and the four. My tears have been my food day and night While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Look, in Christianity, you don't have to feel bad for feeling bad. Here he names and he recognizes his emotions. My tears has been my food day and night. And now they've led me to this place of doubt. Where is your God? That's going to come also at the verse 10. We're going to see that uh, theme repeated. And then I remember this. And what does he remember? I remember that time where I had this sweet community, where I was basically in worship. And I had this wonderful throng of procession. And everybody was singing. And I was at the leader. I remember this community. Uh, As Keller says, everybody wants community until they realize it comes with accountability. But in community is where we start to process and what we long for uh, to process some of our emotions to help us get out of it. And in community is where we find the gifts of God used like forgiveness and mercy and grace. It's in community where we start to recognize who we are and what we're made for, and how God deeply forgives us, and that's what the psalmist is longing for here. Uh, if you live in any community for any period of time, you will have to practice forgiveness, and I want this church and all of us individually to get really, really good at it—forgiving others, forgiving ourselves, because of the grace of God. Corey Temboom, I've told you about her over the years. Um, I won't tell you that one story. Most of her family killed in the Holocaust, and there's another story that goes along with that. But she had this moment where somebody had deeply wronged her, and she could not get over it. And it kept her up. Her tears kept her up day and night and day and night and day and night for weeks. She was speaking. She finally knocked on the door of a Lutheran church, didn't know the pastor, And said, I just need some spiritual counsel. Just knocked on the door, town she didn't know. And uh, she said, Look, I cannot get over this. Uh, I can't get any rest from it. I just kept thinking about how I've been wronged. And and my tears are keeping me up day and night. And he, uh, this wise Lutheran pastor, paused for a second and then pointed at a bell tower across town. And he said this to her Up at that church tower is a bell. which which is wrong by pulling the rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps swinging, the first ding and then the second ding, slower and slower and slower till there's a final ding and a final dong, and then it stops. I believe that the same is true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we must take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, We mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And then tem boom And so it proved to be true. There were a few more midnight reverberations and a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversations. But the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out from them. They came less often, and they stopped finally altogether. We can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. You have to recognize your emotion. If you feel like you've been hurt, if you feel like you've been harmed, you can't suppress that. But then it's not just letting go. That's the only thing I don't like about this analogy is uh, just let go of it. No, it's actually giving over. It's actually turning over to God. You have to deal with this. You have to deal with this pain. You have to deal with this hurt. Your emotions need to be recognized. Let me pause. Do you know what your emotions are now? What's keeping you up at night? What are your grievances? What bell are you still banging on and you're not getting any rest because you haven't fully embraced the grace or the mercy or the forgiveness of God or you haven't fully extended it? How's it going? Let me ask you another one. How's it going between you and the Lord right now? Are you in the game at all? Celebrating, grieving? Next point. Emotions are embraced without enabling. For example, uh, Jesus said, in your anger, do not sin. So, you know, we're going to recognize that you're angry, but now I don't want you, I don't let that emotion enable you to go sin. So you can embrace your emotions without letting them enable you to do something else, without letting them guide you. Uh, look at verse 5 through 10. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. And I again will praise him for my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizer. I I won't go into this too much, but Hermon is at the very north of Israel. So he's all alone. He's all isolated uh, as he's writing this prayer. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now, interestingly, Psalm 42, as opposed to other Psalms, uh, highlight that there's nothing that's actually, uh, there's no sin of his. A lot of the Psalms say, look, my, I'm wasting within me. My bones are waxing within me because I have this sin, and I have this grievance, and I've, I've done this horrible thing. This guy, nothing of that has happened. He's just feeling morose. He's just feeling bad, and he embraces all of that, and he wrestles it to the ground, and he makes it a prayer. Now, next year, Lord willing, uh, after we read through the Bible this year, And I hope you're still, you know, kind of stay on that. If you've fallen off the wagon, get back on. It's okay. Give yourself grace. Start again tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon, whenever you do it. Next year, hopefully, we'll focus on prayer. Because we talk about prayer all the time, but we don't ever really pray. And we actually don't know if we're good at it or not. And we don't have any techniques. You know, so we're going to talk about prayer without making anybody feel guilty. But you know what a great way to pray is? A great way to pray is the way that the psalmists pray. Here's how I'm feeling. God, I wonder where you are. I- I'm feeling distressed. I have these enemies. I, I want to believe that you're my rock. I want to believe that you're the one who is the security for me. He's just taking everything that he's feeling, all of his, his emotions, and he's turning them into a prayer. And that's what makes the songs of the church. All of these psalms are psalmists taking their emotions, their thoughts, their feelings, and turning them into prayers. That's basically all you have to do. God, I'm feeling incredibly stressed right now. God, I'm feeling so insecure. I'm about to walk into this dinner party, and uh, I'm, not, I'm just not as pretty or as accomplished as all these other people. God, I'm feeling incredibly uh, anxious right now because I've got this test on Tuesday and I haven't studied and I don't have enough time to catch up. God, I feel like a failure right now. Or, God, I am so joyful and content. God, you have given me so much. You, you've shared with me. I've had my health and my life. You shared with me uh, so many wonderful things. You know, you can take your good emotions and turn those into prayers as well. But that's what the psalmist does here. And then the final point is this. Emotions should point us to the truth. Now, I should say this carefully emotions aren't necessarily truth. Like, you can't, I'm not suggesting that you can trust your emotions as truth. But what I am saying is you can use your emotions to point you to a deeper truth. Look at what he says in verse 11. This is repeated two times, kind of the refrain, verse 5 and verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? So he's recognizing that emotion. But then he's saying this. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So these emotions are pointing him to a truth. And why does he say hope in God? Because his hope hasn't been in God. His hope's been in something else. So he's he's reminding his soul, no, this is the truth that I'm going to hold on today. Even though I feel downcast, even though I feel depressed, even though I feel morose, I'm going to hope in God today because here's the truth. He is my salvation and he is my God. Emotions point us to truth, or should point us to truth, but they aren't necessarily the truth. You can't go through this world based on your feelings. And a, um, a really wonderful debate, which I reread, I hadn't read it for years, between uh, Bertrand Russell and Frederick Copleston. Copleston was a Catholic priest, Bertrand Russell uh, was a complete atheist. There's a couple moments where Copleston uh, backed Russell into a corner, Uh, And Russell famously wrote the book, Why I'm Not a Christian, which I think I've referenced to you before. And at one of the moments is this one. Koppelsen says, he's the Christian. Koppelsen says, yes, but what's your justification for distinguishing between good or bad? And how do you view your distinction between them? Russell, I don't have any justification any more than I should distinguish between blue and yellow. What is my justification for distinguishing between blue and yellow? I can see that they're different. Copleston. That's an excellent justification. I agree. You distinguish blue and yellow by seeing them. So you distinguish good and bad by what faculty? Russell, by my feelings. Copleston, by your feelings? Well, that's what I was asking. You think that good and evil have a reference simply to feeling, Russell. Well, why does one type of object look yellow and another blue? And then they get into a long debate about the commandant of Belsen and Hitler and how Hitler was simply following his feelings and emotions and got everybody else to feel emotionally one way. Look, the Christian faith, look how robust and beautiful the Christian faith is. The Christian faith, read through the Psalms, gives you all the room in the world to feel sad, to feel angry, to feel happy, to be content, to feel joy, and it takes all of those emotions because you're made, God made you as an emotional creature, a volitional and intellectual one as well, to take all of those emotions and then point them towards a greater truth An underlying truth. And that's the process that we have to get good at. Thomas Chalmers says it this way. He says, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and the excellencies of Christ. I think it will be on the screen. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. And the only way to dispossess Christ Of an old affection is the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, it's this beautiful picture where he says, look, take that expulsive power of looking at Christ, of gazing at him, and let that guide you and bring your emotions with you to the table and to the cross. As a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. You know why Christianity is so robust? Because Christ said, I thirst on the cross. I thir- What was he thirsting for? What was that longing? What was his desire? It was to have a relationship with you, to know you, to guide you, and to lead you, and to listen to you when you pray to bottle up every tear that you've ever cried and to keep them in his storehouse and to wipe one day every tear from your eye. Christ felt emotions. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also knew at the end of the day that the joke was on us, that he was gonna redeem this world. Uh, One last quote. It's not gonna be on the screen. It's longer, but this talks about the emotion of Christ. Arguably my favorite quote, uh, the last paragraph from G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. Joy, which is a small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And as I close this chaotic volume, I open the strange small book from which all Christianity came. And again, I am hunted by a kind of confirmation. The tremendous figure which fills the gospel towers. In this respect of joy. And in every other, above the thinkers who have ever thought themselves tall, his pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far side of the native city. And yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomats are proud of restraining their anger, but he never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple. He asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell, yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up to the mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon the earth. And I've sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. You'll have to look up that word if you don't know it. But it means deep abiding joy and hope. Look, friends, that's the secret of the Christian, that when you say, why is my soul downcast? You can also say, but I have hope in God, my salvation. This, not this past week, but the week before, I was gone all week in uh, Birmingham to speak at a pastor's conference. Uh which are, those are exhausting because I tend to be vulnerable. So you end up with like a ton of counseling appointments throughout the week. And, uh, but I love pastors. Uh, and then I had a wedding in Macon, so that's why I was gone. But during the middle of the week, we had a big dinner party for some of the pastors at this um, mansion in Mountain Brook, this guy, private equity guy. And it was me and uh, a black guy from Strong Tower Fellowship in Nashville, 30 years old and then an Asian American from L.A. And it was awesome. We sat there uh, for two hours, and I heard all about the Asian American sentiment in L.A., what's happening in L.A., and then I heard all about uh, this black guy's church in Nashville. He's from Detroit, went to Mississippi State. And halfway through, the, the Asian American guy, he had his glasses on and he kept taking them off and he, would, he was looking and then he like wiped his glasses and he put them back on and he was looking. And I finally said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and he said, there's these lights. There's these lights. And something's wrong with my eyes. And I said, bro, those are Fireflies and the fireflies had come out and he had never seen one <laughs> had no idea what they were and i i said we can catch one and he said no we can't they'll bite i said no they're not gonna they're not gonna bite so 10 minutes later after i convinced them Uh, me and this Asian pastor are running through the backyard of this private equity guy trying to catch a fire, you know. And I finally caught one and I put it in his hand and he was a little scared and then it lit up in his hand and then it flew away and he looked at me with these big eyes and he said, what else has God made that I don't know about? (laughs) There's a beautiful picture. He's, He's not doing real well, but there's that moment of hope. What else is God doing that I don't know about? Uh, the black pastor moved down from Detroit to Mississippi, Mississippi State because he got a full ride to run track. I didn't race him. He is very fast, was very fast. Wasn't a believer, inner-city Detroit. Somebody had the courage to invite him to FCA, his sophomore year. Doesn't have a dad do not even know his dad. Barely got out of Detroit, but now he's got a full ride. He's in college. Somebody had the courage to invite him to uh, FCA, and he sat there for three weeks watching them worship. And I said, what led you to the Lord? And he said, watching those people have hope and joy, and I realized they all had something I didn't. And then they gave me the space in the room to ask question after question after question. And then I became a Christian. And then I became a pastor. What led him to the Lord? Watching the community with him have joy and have hope and giving him the space to do that. So friends, let me pause by asking you this. What's your emotion? What are you feeling right now? What have you felt this week? I'm asking you to actually do this work. Now, whatever you have felt or are feeling, close your eyes, turn it into a prayer, and then we'll sing. Let's pray.